she doesn't even look at me. She's like looking down, doing her crocheting, and she says, well, if you're going to live to be 25 anyway, why not be 25 and be a lawyer versus 25 and not? I was like, wow. She certainly put a different perspective on that. (laughs) I am the only person to have walked in space and gone to the deepest point in the ocean. Hi, I'm Kathy Sullivan, and I'm an explorer. Exploring doesn't always have to involve going to some remote or exotic place. It simply requires your commitment to put curiosity into action. So join me on this podcast journey as I reflect on lessons learned from life so far and from my brilliant and ever inquisitive guests. We'll explore together in this very moment from right where you are. Spaceship not required. Welcome to Kathy Sullivan Explores. Before we take off, I have a gift for you. I believe that no matter where you are today, an active thirst for knowledge will help unlock your ability to live a life of meaning and happiness. So I'm sharing some lessons I've learned on my road less traveled. Over at kathysullivanexplores.com, you'll find my seven astronaut tips to improving your life on Earth. When you sign up, I'll send them to you and also make sure you're the first to discover future podcast episodes and learn more about exciting adventures ahead. Just head on over to kathysullivanexplores.com. Well, Vet McGee Brown, Madam Justice, <laughs> always so fun to get with you. I've loved these last couple of weeks after, what, 25 years of knowing each yes. other. We've had these couple of occasions to just more sit down and, and talk about all the the past and stories and, and hilarity of our lives like we've never been able to do in 20, right. <laughs> two decades. How did we let that happen? I know. And all the time I've known you, I told you, I've been fangirling now that I know every, <laughs> like I probably would have been a lot more intimidated had I known everything you've done, Miss <laughs> Sullivan. <laughs> yeah, not even faintly. <laughs> well, thank you so much for being on the show. And I mean, there's so many things I'm interested to explore with you, but because I've had the chance to know you for so long, but most of these people listening haven't. So let's back the tape up a bit and uh, start in early days. You're an actual born and raised Columbus native, right? I am one of the few. I was born and raised on the east side of Columbus. My mom was a teenage mother. And um, thanks to a lot of help from my grandmother, uh, she raised us. She worked, she had two children after me and worked two jobs, but she got it done and always instilled in us that we could be anything we wanted. Now, was there other family? Tell us more about that neighborhood and what it was like, because you're you're born in 1960. So this Columbus is still a segregated, well, the country is still a segregated country. We lived, so initially we lived in a walk-up apartment off of Fairwood Avenue in the, the inner city of Columbus. And then I don't remember a lot of neighbors. It was really, my mom is one of eight children. So it was really an insular family. And my grandmother was the matriarch. Were you all right around there, that, yes. that neighborhood, that apartment? Yep. I remember walking to my cousin's house who lived a few blocks away. And um, and we always gathered at my grandmother's house. I mean, I remember when my grandmother died in 1985. The one thing she said is, don't lose that. Don't lose that family. Don't lose that connectedness. And she was a strong role model for me because she was, I feared her. She was <laughs> <laughs> Not your sweet and cushy granny? No. <laughs> 
She was a woman who grew up in the Jim Crow South, and she had expectations for behavior. Um, and she worked, and my grandfather, um, she divorced my grandfather in the late 40s, early 50s. That uh, was hardly done. It was hardly done, but he had a problem with alcohol. He was a handsome guy, but my grandmother said unless she was at the, the plant gate on Friday, he'd be gone all weekend and would have spent up all the money. And you just get tired of doing that. So that's how strong she was. Eight kids and she still divorced them. Wow. And she raised everybody and got them through high school. And when I was nine, my mom married briefly and moved us up into the Amvet Village area off of Sunbury Road, which was which about a, 10 miles north-ish. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And it was more of a working class neighborhood, mm -hmm. but still predominantly black. Yeah. And uh, people are surprised to learn that I went to school because the Columbus City Schools were declared segregated by Judge Duncan uh, in the late 70s. Desegregated. De they were declared segregated. And and he desegregated oh, okay. them in the late 70s. And so I went to middle school from 1 p.m. to 6 p.m. And then I went to high school in the same building from 7.30 a.m. to 12.30 p.m. So for all of my education... Wait, how does this work that you're spending half day at high school before a half day at middle school? I mean, <laughs> isn't knowledge supposed to kind of accumulate forward? <laughs> Yeah. It, and it's weird. Like, I think now with children, if my 12 year old was sitting at home, because my mom had to work. And so I would catch the bus at 12 o'clock. So I'd be home all morning by myself and get on the bus. It was really a crazy situation. But you talk about impact. I can remember when Judge Duncan was considering the, the desegregation case. I would be watching on the news, Boston, Boston had had an order to desegregate their schools and people would be shaking the buses. And I can remember these angry white faces saying, no, we are not, we're not doing this and shaking buses with children on them. And I remember thinking to myself, why do they hate us so much? It is a, one of those memories that's just seared into your head, but the, the flip side of that is I went to school with teachers who look like me who cared about me, who were invested in me succeeding. And so I did well in school. So you, there was a bit of a trade-off, yeah. right? When you were watching that, and it probably should be noted, uh, Judge Robert Duncan was one of the first African-American judges on the bench in yes. Ohio. So the fact that this decision, he was on the Supreme Court at that time, right? He was on the Supreme Court before. He was a federal district federal court district judge, judge at that point. Yeah. But the fact that this matter of segregating or desegregating the schools was coming before that judge mm -hmm. was quite a big thing. It was pretty powerful, yeah. Yeah. But I'm also curious, as you watched those angry scenes from other cities, knowing that a desegregation order was maybe coming your way in Ohio, did you have any other thoughts? Like, this is working pretty okay for me the way it is. Do I want to... If I have to go through that gauntlet, what's on the other side? Is it worth it? Did thoughts like that go through your mind? They did. And you know, it's funny, as a kid, you only know what you know, right? So my neighborhood, there were some two-parent families in our neighborhood. They were people who went to work every day. My, I thought we were middle class. I mean, I didn't, I didn't really appreciate, you know, that we were on the lower rung of things. And I remember saying to, I actually met Judge Duncan. Um, I did my senior thesis on the desegregation case. I remember when I interviewed Judge Duncan for my senior thesis, I said to him, 
why do we have to change schools? Why can't you just make our schools better? And that was really as a, as a teenager. And I still think about that now, like why did equality mean that we had to bust people out of neighborhood schools? Why couldn't you just make sure that there were resources shared amongst the schools in an equitable way? And judge Duncan was very patient with me. And he just said, this is what the Supreme Court is required. And because we want to make sure that schools are integrated, if we do it just based on neighborhoods, you never get to the integration that the Constitution requires. Mm -hmm. And so you actually, you're a high school senior, and he's a federal district judge. And I know, can you believe that? <laughs> yeah, where, I want to know about this. How, well, I think you've maybe told me what the source of your chutzpah was, probably your grandmother. but. I, that's some man of chutzpah, a just cold call or cold <laughs> note a federal judge. Well, you know what? Well, some, what, <laughs> what was that like? <laughs> sometimes ignorance is bliss. Like, I had no idea what a federal judge was, right? So I, as a lawyer, I would have been very intimidated to just pick up the phone and call a federal judge. But I was 17. And so <laughs> I didn't know what a federal judge his was. His name is Duncan. <laughs> Find me his number. <laughs> and I just, I, you know, I looked in the phone book. I, I called him up. But what was remarkable as I think back on that experience is that, one, he took my call. He was a federal judge. I was a 17-year-old kid from Mifflin High School. He didn't know me. I the, but he talked to me and he agreed to meet with me and I took my my uh, tape recorder that was one of those big Sony cassette yeah. recorders. Uh, no one on briefcase. this call has a laptop that is as big as that recorder That's was. Exactly right. <laughs> And I, I went down to the courthouse. He was so patient with me. And he ended up becoming a dear friend. Because if you look at it from my perspective, I had never seen a black man with such stature. You know, in, in my He was world, an elegant, oh, all around elegant man. And yet so humble and, and so kind, but so powerful. And so when I, you walk into that federal courthouse and you look around you and then you see there's a black man sitting there, for me, it was another one of those imprints. And, and he left something in me that when I became an elected judge, I never forgot it. I would talk to students. I would go speak at schools. I would have students intern in my chambers because I was trying to pay forward what he did for me. Yeah. Yeah, I think the broader lesson there that I have sometimes struggled to practice all through my life, or regardless what stage of life I've been at, is just ask. More often than not, you'll be surprised, however lofty or whatever that person is, ask if you can buy them a cup of coffee and have 30 minutes of their time. They'll almost always say yes. Absolutely, it's, they will. And it's not so bad if they say no. You ask an honest question, they gave you an honest answer, off you go. Nothing lost. Yeah. So how much did Judge Duncan's influence factor into your decisions to go into the law? Because you didn't start out heading towards the law as you were. And, and you were probably, were you the first person in your family to head yes, off to college? Absolutely, yeah. I was. And so that's when I've discovered that we were poor. When I went to OU, <laughs> <laughs> it was real. you know, it was a guidance counselor who advised my mom she could get student loans and financial aid and when we got to OU, Ohio University, Ohio University, they put us into this, they put a group of us into this auditorium and we had this woman, um, I forget what her title was, but she was basically to help there to help first generation students. And as she was talking to us, <laughs> it dawned on me that we were poor. And I called, <laughs> I called my mother and I said, 
we're poor. Like, <laughs> <laughs> and and the beauty oh, of no. I know <laughs> the beauty of my mother is that we never felt poor, you know? That's the gift. Like I never I don't know how she got it done, but we always had Christmas, we had birthdays, we had cookouts. I mean, it never occurred to me that we were underprivileged, I think was the term they used. Yeah, and so yeah. So immediately when I went to college, I was going to be a journalist because I was on the school newspaper and that's what I knew, right? And it was a journalism professor who was my advisor. I was fortunate to get this black woman named Sandra Haggerty who literally changed my life. She, back then, I don't think students have to do it now, but back then you had to go show your schedule to your advisor. Right. To make sure you were on the right track and you were meeting all your uh, prerequisites. And so at the end of my sophomore year, when I went to see Sandra, she said to me, you know, I think you should think about going to law school. And I'm like, well, why? And she said, because you clearly can compete. It would be three more years of your life. You'd be 25 years old. You'd have the world by a string. And your reaction was? You're crazy. I'm not doing three more years of college. I can't wait to get done with this. <laughs> and then that summer when I went home and I talked to my grandmother and I said, um, can you believe what this lady said I ought to do? <laughs> I said, Granny, who goes to college for seven years? That's just crazy. I mean, I'd be 25 years old. And you'd have to know my grandmother. She loved to um, watch game shows and crochet. And she's sitting in this oversized chair. She's crocheting. She doesn't even look at me. She's like looking down, doing her crocheting. And she says, well, if you're going to live to be 25 anyway, why not be 25 and be a lawyer? Versus 25 and not. I was like, wow. She certainly put a different perspective <laughs> on that. <laughs> and then I did think about Judge Duncan. And I started applying to law schools and that next fall. And it was interesting because um, when I talked to him and a couple of other people, because I got accepted by Capital University, Ohio State, Georgetown. Georgetown wasn't giving me any money. And so my mother kind of said, look, you got a full ride at Ohio State, you got a full ride at Capitol, you need to make a decision. And Judge Duncan and Judge Pettigrew were two of the people that I asked for their opinion. And they both said, Ohio State. Of course, Judge Duncan was from yeah, Ohio State. Yeah, there's just so, a little yeah. bit of yeah. <laughs> a little bit of deep Buckeye loyalty going on there. <laughs> and and it, purple is just the wrong color. Scarlet right. and gray is so much better. <laughs> and it made all the difference. I mean, I just... And he stayed, he stayed an advisor and a mentor to me until his death. So as you're going through law school, at what, what point do you start to get a glimmer of what aspect of the law, what pathway, because a law degree is a law degree and you can go become a lawyer, but a law degree imparts also a certain body of skills yeah. that can carry you anywhere. So how did your thinking and your vision evolve for what do I want to be with this sheepskin that I'm going to get? So there were two pivotal moments. One, near the end of my first year, I got a job in the prosecutor's office working for um, Ronald Bryan and Greg Lashutka. 
And that was a powerful office, man. I, it was my first time where I'd been around other lawyers. I mean, and there's so many people from that office that went on to be judges. It was really like this kind of sweet moment in time. Debbie Price, who was... Kind of a training ground for moving on to the bench? Yes. Okay. Debbie Price was my immediate supervisor. She was a judge and then became a congresswoman. Um, of course, Ron O'Brien became the county prosecutor, but it was there where... Greg Lashaka went on to be mayor of Columbus. Yes. So I, there were all... It was just this great synergy, right? And what was interesting about that time is I was a Democrat. They were all Republicans. And Greg Lashutka never asked me my party. He never cared what your party was. He just, he was such a kind man. Like, he would write you personal notes if you did a good job on a case. It's how it used to be, right? It wasn't, Yeah. it was about hiring the best people. And I kind of got the bug. I tell people, I think I was a frustrated actress. I loved being in the courtroom. I loved working on behalf of victims and being able to provide some sense of recovery, some sense of wholeness to people who had had a traumatic experience. So so you were a law student. But the prosecutor's office handles a wide array of cases, you mm-hmm. know, white collar crime mm-hmm. to whatever. Did you end up on sort of an avenue what kind of body of work did you get exposed to while you were in the prosecutor's so office? So I was on the criminal side. Okay. And that's where I, that's where you're, you're, I was initially, cause I was a law student, I was doing traffic arraignments, um, license revoc, driver license revocation hearings, but I was doing research on motions for prosecutors on motions to suppress, um, you know, those kinds of things. And so I was, I was around it and I liked the fast pace of it. I liked being in arraignment court and making those snap decisions. I just loved being in the court and there's nothing when you're a judge and you sit on a trial court, a criminal court, you were making fast decisions, but you're also the semblance of justice to people who have been through some trauma. And I really like that. So that was the first one. And then my second year of law school, I had this evidence teacher named Harriet who had worked in the Manhattan DA's office. And she was four foot 11 and just like a jumping bean. She was always jumping around the room. And this is where it solidified for me. She said, I want you to get up every morning excited about the work you're doing. You can't wait to jump out of bed because you know you're going to make a difference today. That's what I want for you for your career. The law should be something that you love and you use it as a tool to do what's right. And I was mesmerized by this woman. I was like, I'm going to do that. (laughs) I am with her. (laughs) And so that's where I decided I was going to be a litigator. And I thought that I would spend my career in the prosecutor's office. I just, I loved it. I thought thought that was what I was meant to do. And then as I come to my my third year, you start your interviewing for jobs. The prosecutor, Ron O'Brien, said to me, he said, you'll get our next opening. So at the prosecutor's office, they only had so many slots. Right. Next opening could be within a couple months or it could be two years. And then I had the attorney general's office saying to me, in it was January of my third year, they were giving me an offer that I could come in and be an assistant attorney general. I could do litigation and I could start as soon as I finished the bar exam. So I went to the attorney general's office. Yeah. I still want to know more about how what are the drivers for a litigator to decide to move over onto the bench? I, mm. I just don't understand what what factors, personally or career planning wise, what that's about. And and your path, I mean, as as I've known you from when you were on the bench and then forward, was always strongly centered on family family issues, yes. child custody issues, things like that. So, walk me through that. How does 
one get How there? does that, yeah. The how, the how and why of, of yeah. shifting sides like that. So I think most litigators think of themselves that one day they'll be a judge because there's nothing like being able to make the decisions. Ah, <laughs> so I'm mo- just proposing you are getting yes, to decide. the power right. of being able to make the decision. So a lot of prosecutors, a lot of litigators see them, they would love to be a judge to be able to decide and to put their stamp on the cases that the court handles. For me, it was more securitous than that. So in, as an assistant AG, I was representing the Department of Corrections and And eventually I became the chief counsel to the Ohio Department of Corrections and was implementing consent decrees, overseeing litigation, supervising lawyers. What what does a consent decree do in the kind of cases you were handling? So the consent decree is the federal court at that time, it was the late 80s had come into had, had done an investigation of Ohio's prison system and found that it was discriminatory on basis of race and sex. So discriminatory with regard to the inmates. Um, it was interesting back then, white inmates got the cells and black inmates got dormitories. And so there was an, the state agreed with the, the federal court that we would make assignments based on non-discriminatory factors. <laughs> Uh, it was interesting. Women could not work in male maximum security institutions, even though men worked in women maximum security On the guard institutions side of as guards. Yeah. Right. Okay. And so, and in fact, got some of our women inmates pregnant. And so, <laughs> what a surprise! Convincing evidence, right? Yeah. So, <laughs> so part tangible of, proof. Yeah. Part of my job was saying to wardens, "You are going to allow women to work in these maximum security prisons, and every woman." who sees an inmate does not want to have sex with them. These are professionals in the same way that we expect our men to be professional. But it was, I spent a lot of time in prisons talking to the wardens, to the captains and the command structure, and making sure that job duties for inmates, bed assignments for inmates were headed out, handed out based on a security level and not based on race factors. So, so the consent decree would have been sort of the negotiated document where the state and the, and the court. prison system, yeah. the court and the prison system mm-hmm. said, okay, we will A, B, C, D, and E and yes. check us and monitor us on these things. That's exactly right. Okay. So we had a monitor. It's a settlement. Yes, it's a settlement it's agreement, a settlement but document. with the power of the federal court behind it okay. and a monitor who was in the prisons three times a year, usually, making sure that you were in compliance. And so I did that. And, and part of, of doing that work is you see how many young Black men and women are in our prison system. I mean, young, 16, 17, 18, 20 years old. And I just started thinking, like, if these kids have been given different options, different opportunities, different choices, they wouldn't be here. There's no reason. If you've got, at that time, Ohio's, the Black population in Ohio was 15%, yet it was 50% of the prison system. That's wrong. And so... I started to think maybe I could make a difference if I, you know, instead of pulling them out of the water, keep from throwing them in. You know, the old right. parable. Go in the upstream Bible. and yep. yeah, take care of the fact that someone's throwing them into the water. That's right. Yeah. And that's where I first started thinking about it. And then the, the Democratic Party, the county party came to me and asked me if I if I would run. I was only 32 then. And I initially said no, because I was only 32. I'd been practicing a grand total of seven years. Yeah. And- <laughs> that, that would be another one of the gender distinctions, though. If they went to a 29-year-old male lawyer who'd been practicing for two, That's right. the answer would have been, heck yeah, I'm ready. <laughs> sign me up. <laughs> 
That's exactly right. And it was a Republican county. There was only one other Democrat that had been elected countywide. That was Janet Jackson. And so I thought, there's no way I can do this. I, I mean, nobody's going to vote for me. And, and, you know, they came back to me two other times. And I, I often think about that parable about God saying, I sent you a boat. I sent you a yeah. helicopter. I mean, what more signs? How, how many did you, you need? <laughs> and I, I often, when I give speeches to young people, I talk about that moment because how different my life would have been if I gave in to my own insecurity and said no, instead of risking it. And the good thing about being a lawyer is the, you always think about what's the worst thing that can happen. So the worst thing that could have happened in that instance is I would have lost the election, but I'm still a lawyer. So granny, I can still granny go. Was right. yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> granny is still right. That's right. Granny is still yeah. right. <laughs> That's a great way to put it. No, but I, but I really like that. What is the worst that can happen here? Mm-hmm. Uh, in, in the everyday things of life, we seem to very often catapult our thinking forward to all of the bad stuff that could and not step back and say, okay, but yeah, but let's recalibrate. Mm-hmm. How bad is the worst of those things? Yeah. And you, if you get that little glimmer moment of, oh, I'm upset and depressed about losing an election and I go back to the attorney general's mm-hmm. office on Monday. That's right. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I can do that. That's right. And you know what's beautiful when you surround yourself with good friends, when the governor asked me about going on the Supreme Court, I'm jumping ahead a bit. I had a friend say that back to me because initially I said, I don't want to run statewide. I don't want to do this again. I mean, I'm feeling tired. I'm tired. I've got to give up my job. I've got to give up corporate. I was serving on two corporate boards. I've got to give those up. I'm going to take a 60 to 70% pay cut to do this. None of this sounds fun. And then I might lose the election. And she said to me, I'll never forget. We were at this restaurant in Upper Arlington. She said, so tell me, tell me what it is you can do now that you could not do as a former Supreme Court justice, who's the first black woman on the Ohio Supreme Court. That'd be a good friend. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Walk me through this again. That's right. right. I was like, oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I don't want to quite let you jump that far forward yet because there's another aspect of the work you were doing on the court back when we first met Mm -hmm. that still floors me to this day but there's two so there are two pieces there that I'm curious to ask about one is that one is the notion of power and what's your journey been figuring out power and how to use it uh, so on the one hand you know as a judge there's a set of form as a prosecutor or a judge there's a set of formalisms that I would imagine maybe it was easier to say this is a powerful position. Mm-hmm. Do you as a person feel the same level of power? So there's a little bit of sort of schizophrenia. You, you know prosecutor is powerful, but am I Yvette McGee Brown powerful? If I you will, will someone do what I say if it's just Yvette? I know they'll do it when it's Judge Brown. Right. I know that. <laughs> but how about the just Yvette part? You know? That's right. So I'm curious about your journey of learning about getting comfortable with and coming to your views and ethos of how to use both your power and the court's power? That's that's a really brilliant question. Um, because again, I was 32, right? So when I won, I beat an incumbent judge. Everybody was shocked. I ran the same year as Bill Clinton, got great coattails. You remember that election was Bill Clinton, the senior George Bush, and uh, Perot. 
and lines were out the door. Um, and I just, nobody expected this young, and that's the other thing, be underestimated in life because my opponent never thought I had a chance. So I don't think he worked as hard as I did, right? When you're the challenger and the underdog, you got to work hard. And I think he assumed he'd been given a gift. Like, there's no way this kid's going to beat me. And so Granny speaks. Granny used to always say to me, don't ever ruin my name. You get one name. And so when we got elected, and I mean, there were news interviews and there were newspaper articles and magazine, everybody was just so stunned about who is this young black woman who's coming to the court. When I hired my staff, I said to them, we are going to, we got six years. We don't know if we'll get reelected, but we've got six years. And in those six years, we're going to work hard. We're not going to have any foolishness, kind of the Obama no drama. Mm -hmm. You will put an eight hour day in here. We will give the taxpayers what they're asking for and we will be professional. And so I set that tone coming in the door. And so as a judge, what I wanted to do is I didn't just want to do X's and O's. I wanted to make a difference. So I spent a lot of time reading pre-sentence investigation reports, trying to understand what brought people to this point so that maybe I could craft a sentence that was appropriate to them, not just everybody gets the same. That's how I handled my power as a judge, to, to really focus on the individual. As a person, what quickly became apparent to me is I could have given a speech the day before the election, nobody cared. The day after the election, everybody cared. And so, <laughs> yep. and so what I decided to do when was to use, dogs. Yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> I decided to use my platform then to speak out on issues that were important, like the foster care system, making reforms there. Some of the social workers on the, in the foster care system used to hate coming into my courtroom because I would put them through their paces. When they would come in, I'd be like, when's the last time you saw this child that's in foster care? Because you know what? You're required to see that child every 30 days. So you're standing before me giving me a recommendation on a child you haven't seen in three months. That's unacceptable. So I made, they knew when they came into my courtroom, I wanted to know what are you doing to reunite this child with their family? Did you get the mother into services? And so I used my platform to talk about issues, to talk about to particularly the nonprofit providers. Like we're not just giving you a check. If you're getting money from the court, I want to know what you're doing. I want you to meet certain standards. And so I tried to use it to improve the system. Cool. And did that feed back into your sense of individual power? You've run for office a couple of times. You've led a, a founded and led a, a major nonprofit, sat on the bench. Mm -hmm. is, there, I, is there still a little bit triangulating between the official power and the individual or is it kind of settled in? For me now, it's settled in, but back then, I think it was kind of fused mm -hmm. because you're always a judge, right? Yeah, you're true. always a judge. So people who saw me, they always saw me as a judge. What was interesting is when I decided to leave the bench, my husband said to me, and, and I decided to leave the bench because I just couldn't take it anymore. I mean, the depravity, it was nine years of seeing some of the worst in people that you could imagine children being abused and raped and murders. And I remember I would watch the news at night and get a, a knot in the pit of my stomach thinking, they're going to be in my courtroom tomorrow. I'm going to be having to make arraignment decisions or whatever it was. And so I started thinking about what my next chapter was. I remember my husband saying to me, you have to make sure that you're going to be okay when people don't call you judge anymore. 
You've got to think That's through, a good insight. Is it right? Because, yes, that part about everyone listens to your speeches that yes. started the day after the election is also going to end. That's the right. The day after the election, <laughs> you right. lose. That's right. That's right. <laughs> You're sub- there's suddenly not as many dinners out and luncheon That's invitations. Right. Yeah. And, and, he, and, and it really it caused me to think about it. But I think the one thing I was certain of, one, I was confident in my abilities, right? I, I, I just gave a speech for the Akron University Law School for their commencement. And I said that what I hope to give you is being unafraid to fail. Because being a lawyer, I feel unafraid to fail. I feel no matter what I do, I'm always a lawyer. If this doesn't work out, I'm just going to move on to next. And what I knew is I never wanted to be one of those judges that was just phoning it in who doesn't even look at the people, who just hands out sentences, whose heart is hardened because of what they've been seen over the years. And I knew when I, when it, I had to get on the judge's elevator to go to my courtroom and I would literally be praying for God to give me peace during that day that it was time to move on. And so I just felt confident. I mean, I took my time. I looked for the right opportunity. It happened to be at Nationwide Children's Hospital. And I had built uh, a reputation for work that was outside of being on the judiciary. I was on nonprofit boards. I was the board chair for the YWCA. You know, people who worked with me saw me as being able to lead outside of just in the black robes. Well, that was something that struck me about you from the start of, of our acquaintance was you could have just been on the bench and then, you know, gone off to the golf course or whatever mm-hmm. else judges do. But you were, you know, you were engaged in other avenues and pathways that could affect the same kind of issues in the community. The YWCA and and looking after homeless women or abused Mm -hmm. women and trying to stabilize them so they don't fall further off the cliff but can make their way back. And you were always involved in those things, Mm -hmm. you know, shaping shaping the ground with one hand and sort of catching the debris, if you will, at your bench with the other hand. That's a great way to put it. I think I think it's because, Kathy, I've always been grateful. You know what I mean? I mean, we had housing instability when I was growing up. My mom had to struggle to keep food on the table. And the thing that being a judge taught me is I am so grateful for the mom I had. You know, I never had my dad, but I had my grandmother and my mom. And you know, any twist of fate, kids don't get to choose who they're born to. And had my mother been a different person who was more interested in being with men or taking drugs or partying, this life for me is not possible. And so I'm always grateful for that. And I feel like kids who don't get to choose their parents, they need a support system. They need people out there trying to help them get to the same place because they started further behind. Yeah, I heard you say once that you felt growing up, this was in the days before you realized you were poor, mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> but that you, you know, your sense of those early difficult times in a, a segregated poor part of town was that you, uh, you felt like this, I think the phrase you used was the system was rooting for my success. Yes. 
I did. I felt that. I, I felt like the, the government, the system, they wanted me to succeed. There were all of these great programs. I mean, from the time I was 14 years old, there were federally funded jobs for teenagers. From 14 until I graduated from high school, I worked a summer job, the CETA program. You know, first starting out in the daycare, then I went to work for the city of Columbus. Summers when I was in college, I would come back to Columbus and I worked at the airport in an administrative role. So there were always these kind of safety nets. And as I've often said, there were periods in our life growing up where my mother was on federal assistance, where we had food stamps and government aid. But as I also say, I have repaid the government a hundred times over for the small investment they gave my mom to get us through those periods. And I wish that people could see that that little support can spawn adults who can give back so much more than the government's small investment in them. Yeah. Yeah. So the job you mentioned as you were shifting gears from the bench to Nationwide Children's Hospital, I mean, it was an extraordinary continuation of the body of work mm. you'd built on the bench. It was yeah. the Center for Child and Family Advocacy. Yes. Uh, and I remember you and I had an interesting conversation as you were getting ready to shift into that role because there are a lot of... Um, big heavyweight, heavy hitters of Columbus, Ohio, backing that and funding it. Uh, and you're, you're a lawyer, and you're a woman, and you're African-American, and you're going to go to work at this hospital system where the hierarchy is white coat doctors, mm -hmm. and then maybe kind of medical students, and then maybe nurses, and then maybe technical staff, and well below that is sort of everybody else. Right. <laughs> I remember you were trying to, you had an interesting time thinking through and figuring out, because I was navigating a, a very different structure and mm -hmm. culture and racial mix and everything else. Yes. Uh, now, not as a judge. Right. But as this unknown person leading this unknown new thing that someone just stapled onto my hospital. So That's right. tell me about that. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> tell me about that transition. Yeah. And and you're right. That was, I think they didn't know what to do with me. And I wasn't sure how I fit it. Cause I went from where I was running a court, you know, I had 300 employees that I was responsible for to creating a new organization that didn't exist. It was a center, a multidisciplinary center to serve children who had been sexually abused and seriously physically abused. So again, it was that parable. Okay. Okay, I'd been on the court where I was trying to keep from throwing kids into the ocean. So now I was going back even further upstream to say, okay, these are kids who have had something really horrible happen to them. How do I get them to see themselves as survivors and not victims so that they don't go and then start to act out and, and go to do drugs or create crimes. So here I am in this hospital system. And it's interesting because the first, it started day one with the negotiation because uh, a friend of mine who was on the board introduced me to the CEO and we talked about this vision of creating this multidisciplinary center. And so after we'd had one conversation, he invited me back and he lowballed me on the salary and it was about 50000 more than I was making as a judge. And so he said, well, I think this is a pretty good raise. And I said, but it's not what your other presidents make, because I've looked. And I said, <laughs> and no problem if you don't, you know, I'm, I want to come in as a president, but I get that if you don't want to do that, I have a job 
no problem. It's been really nice talking to you. And he said, wait, wait, wait. He said, can I call you back later today? <laughs> can you give me a few hours? And I said, sure. If and you're from Columbus, Ohio, <laughs> and know some of the personalities that we're funding and really all in <laughs> on right. making this center work, you would understand that, that what that little parable means is that uh, Dr. Tom knew his answer had to be, yes, I've hired her successfully. <laughs> And was surprised to find that she knew what a president ought to get paid. That's right. I knew my value, right? Yeah, you knew your value. And you handled that very deftly, by the way. Well, that's okay. Yeah. I got things to do. I have a job. Yeah, no. You've got a problem with these people over here, but but I'm good. And and so it started from you know it started from there right so I come in, and I just get I had this little office because the center hadn't been built yet so we had to play in it we had to put out bids to build we had to find space to build it on, and I was there for a few months before I found out that the CEO had every Thursday at one o'clock something called Office of the CEO where he met with all of his direct reports which were the presidents. Uh, the chief nursing officer and the general counsel and the medical director. So, in, and I met with Tom every couple of weeks for a, a touch in. And so in one of my meetings, I said, Tom, why am I not included in the office of the CEO? I'm one of the presidents. There were four of us and I'm a direct report. And he goes, Oh, you don't need to be included in that. I mean, that's, we're just talking medical stuff. There's no reason for you to be there. And I said, then why is the president of the foundation there? And he said, oh, um, well, um, he mumbled something. He said, well, let me let me think about it. I'll get back <laughs> Damn to it, you. Damn it, she did her homework <laughs> again. <laughs> and I said to him, I said, you know, I think if you've got all your other direct reports in there, not having me there marginalizes me with my colleagues. And he said, well, nobody's discriminating against you. And I said, oh, that's not discrimination. That's. That's, yeah. yeah, I said, I'd never That's used that discounting. Word. That's discounting, right? That I said, I never said you were discriminating to me, but what you are doing is saying to my colleagues, she's a president in name only. She's not really one of us. Well, and you're also saying the entity she's running is not important. of similar value and purpose to this hospital as yours is. Mm -hmm. So it's both, it's both the, eroding your standing with your individual colleagues, but also diminishing the function. You know, in the military, we make an important point about you, you have to defend the billet. Yep. This, this command you're in charge of, for example, you maybe you're very easygoing and maybe you don't halfway mind this kind of falderall. You can't let someone else That's right. diminish the importance and authority of the office you hold. And so you had both those things going that's on right. there. That is, that's right. That's exactly right. That's brilliant. Yes. And, and he, and like most people who are non-confrontational, for six months, he kept canceling my touch base meetings. <laughs> yeah, his assistant kept calling saying, oh, he has a conflict. Oh, he has a conflict. So finally, the last time she did that, I said, okay, so we've had a conflict now for six months. You need to get me on his calendar or we both have decisions to make. And so... Um, he and and part of that was having again another friend Donna James who is in her own right a power person in this community I had talked with her a few months earlier saying I don't understand what the disconnect is with me and and the head of the hospital I, I kept saying is it me and she goes 
well, of course it's you. She said, you're thinking it's because he doesn't like you. She said, he's intimidated by you. He said, you have connections that can be hurtful to him. And he's trying to manage you to the point where you can't hurt him with these other connections. Cause he's like, you're a former judge. He's never dealt with anybody like you. He doesn't live around people who look like you. She said, so instead of thinking that he is trying to marginalize you, what you should think about is that you hold the power and start acting like you hold the power. It's a, it was so pivotal to me, right? Yeah. Yeah, I can remember those. Another friend of mine gave me a similar speech at a much younger age than mm-hmm. that one, and and he baffled he baffled me completely. He was sort of urging me to be a little less obstreperous and intense in some meetings, mm-hmm. and he said, "Use your power," you know. And I remember thinking when he said that, "What power? Mm-hmm. I don't have any power." I, I just couldn't comprehend it at that young stage. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, but we all do, right? And, and as I say to young people now, the one power you have is to vote with your feet, right? You don't ever have to stay someplace where you are not respected or being treated well. And so when Donna said that to me, it was kind of like my Oprah aha moment. So when his assistant called to try to reschedule a meeting we had not had in six months, that's when I said to her, we are going to have this meeting or we both have decisions to make. And, and she knew what that meant. <laughs> yes, she did. And he did too. Yeah. And I got immediately on his calendar and he suddenly said, I'm so sorry about the delay, but yes, you are now part of the office of the CEO and you'll be scheduled for the meetings. And I'm really sorry this took so long. I've just been so busy with my schedule, blah, blah, blah. Sometimes the journey is longer than others. <laughs> But what, but, and, but the other thing Donna said to me, which was also, Pip, she said, you've got to prove to him that you are loyal to him and that you're on his team because you have the ability to hurt him professionally. You need to, he needs to know that you are on his team and that you're not there just to go out and gossip about him to others in the community. And so I made a point of being very intentional about being on his team, bringing value to his office of the CEO. And there was a part, a point where we were in crisis and I made sure to take point on an issue so that he saw that I was working for him, nobody else. I'm going to rephrase that a little bit and ask you to tell me if my rephrasing is just baloney or gets at something significant there. Yes, loyal to him. But, you know, there, there are different levels of loyalty. Mm-hmm. And sometimes if you can find the right one, that's a better leverage point for you to unify with another person. Mm-hmm. And as you tell that story, what I hear is you are also demonstrating, remember, you're this high-profile person with lots of connections and lots of options. Mm-hmm. And if he's wondering, is she playing for her next gig? Is she playing... Right. Is she playing the personal game of Yvette's advancement, or is she really committed to the purposes, to the mission? There's something we could be doing here together, the center and the hospital. Is she about that, or is this just a temporary springboard for her for personal dimension and gain? Because if you can get to that point, that you're mutually loyal to purpose, Mm -hmm. no one has to fawn over the other. It's not, you know, kissing rings, or it's... Yeah, if you, if you if you and I are doing the same thing, 
and I trust that, you start being a lot less worried. That's exactly right. You you hit the nail on the head. That's exactly right. We were we were loyal to the joint purpose that we were creating. And this was not about me. It was not about my next gig, which interestingly, I had to prove over and over again to the people that I was asking to be part of the center, like the county prosecutor who I had worked for, Ron O'Brien. He was a Republican and he was a bit resistant to coming on board with the model of the center because he thought I was just feathering my next gig. He's like, you're just, you know, this is just about you. And I had to really work to demonstrate to him, this was not about me. I don't have any plans. This is about the children of this community. This is about, and the work that can Mm -hmm. be done here. That's right. Yeah. So how long were you with the center? I was there for eight years. And then this other wild card comes along. Yeah, this other completely out of the blue, um, January of 2010, someone from Governor Ted Strickland's office called me. Um, Governor Strickland had was running for a second term, and I had supported him. I knew him socially, but this call kind of took me completely by surprise, and that was um, the governor wanted to consider me for his running mate. And Which I was would like, be for lieutenant governor. For lieutenant governor. And I was like, I'm sorry, what? <laughs> <laughs> and um, this Lee Fisher, his current lieutenant governor, was running for the U.S. Senate. And the governor wanted to talk to me about being his running mate. That was completely out of the blue. And initially I was like... Had uh, you ever thought about running no. for higher office? No, I was really happy there. I was not thinking about, I was thinking about what I might do next, but it was not really Well, at eight years office. into something like that, yeah, you should at least be saying, does this go on, this goes on five or 10 more years or something changes that starts to. Well, one of the things I realized very quickly, so we took us, um, I joined the hospital in 2002 and we opened the center in 2005. So by 2008, it had been a going concern for three years three or 2010 had been a going concern for five years. And one of the things that I'd realized is that I didn't want to be a social services director. For me, the excitement was in creating something new. It was in building it. It was in bringing the systems You're a builder, together. not a maintainer. Right. I didn't want to be a social services leader, I guess. And so I was thinking about next, but this one caught me completely by surprise. And it was almost, it was like something out of a movie, really, because my first conversation was in a law firm conference room with some of his people. And then they, and then it was a meeting with his general counsel, his chief counsel, to go through my background to see if there was anything in my back. I mean, from literally from the time I was born. Yeah, skeletons to, in the closet. Yes, yep. Yeah, anything that could embarrass the governor. And then they're sneaking me in the back of the governor's residence up these steps <laughs> so that the media and the highway patrol went. It was, it was so Spy funny. novel stuff. It was. It was. They wanted to keep it so secret and so buttoned up. But it was 2010 was the year I was turning 50. And I thought this could be an amazing experience. I would love to be lieutenant governor again. I think there's great work I can do. I think I could be a good partner with Ted. So it was like, yeah, and I'd get to meet Obama. I mean, because he's going to have to care about Ohio. He's got to run for reelection, a huge state, midterm Mm -hmm. election. So 
I said yes. And um, it was all of that. It was an amazing experience. Did there you go was, to all 88 of the state fair, county fairs? No, I did not. <laughs> no, because not all 88 of the counties were people who would want to see me. So. <laughs> Oh, fair. <laughs> but I went to a lot Send of them. Send the right emissary. That's right. <laughs> but I did go to one. I'll never, I went to a Civil War reenactment camp in Young's, outside of Youngstown. I remember walking through there, and they were doing the Civil War battles. And I went over to the people representing the Confederate, and I talked to them for a minute. And I said, you know, I, I would wish you luck, but, well, you know. <laughs> And what did they say? Or, or were they dumbstruck? They were kind of dumbstruck. They were like, oh. I, I'm sure you can understand. That's right. That's brilliant. So there were, there were some really incredibly interesting times. I mean, I don't regret doing it at all. Ohio is an amazing state. Ted used to say, Ohio is like seven states shrink wrapped into one. And so that really was the experience. I mean, I went to some fair where they wanted the muskrat fair in Toledo where they wanted me to eat muskrat. I'm like, not doing that, but I will come and support your right to do it. You know, <laughs> I went to, you know, zucchini festivals and fairs and, you know, glass making things. And, and I saw great industries like people in Akron, this company that was doing research that has now come to fruition because it's going to be in the iPhone where they bend glass, right? I mean, it was, it was amazing, including going to Washington, D.C. fundraisers with people like Vernon Jordan, who had a fundraiser for us at his house and being with him. It was just so many experiences like that. That's fabulous. It was really a wonderful time. And then we lose. Yeah, until that day. <laughs> By two points. Um, oh. Like every, almost every Democrat in the country in 2010, it was, as, as Obama said, we got shellacked. We lost by two points. But it was really interesting to see politics up close like that. And then after we lost, Maureen O'Connor got elected chief justice, so her seat on the Supreme Court was open. And that's when Ted talked to me about um, running for this, what I consider an appointment to the Supreme Court. Because he could appoint someone to fill Justice O'Connor's term. Yes, for two years. And then years. you'd run, yeah. And other than it being the Supreme Court, I mean, did you think he was sort of offering you a consolation prize or thanks for trying to help me win? Or did, did any of that cross your mind? Or, and would it have mattered? I mean, it's it's a seat on the Ohio Supreme Court. I, yeah, I don't and, think I would have questioned too much why <laughs> why someone had got there. Yeah, you got it. I'll take it. <laughs> yeah, initially I wasn't sure it was something I wanted to do. I wasn't sure what next looked like. I'd never really thought about the Supreme Court. And you had been able through the campaign, you'd still been able to retain your board. Your my boards. Board I'd left Children's your... Hospital. I right. left Children's okay. Hospital, but I did retain my corporate boards. Okay. So to go onto the bench, back on the bench, it's going to be up. another one of those, you know, two big, two nice streams of income go away. Yep. Uh, your kids have got to be... My son was in middle school. I had a daughter in college. And I remember saying to my husband, my oldest daughter was out of college, but I remember saying to my husband, you're going to have to go back to work if we do this. Because, you know, a Supreme Court justice, even though it's very prestigious, doesn't make a lot of money in comparison to what the private sector pays lawyers. Because um, Tony was about ready to retire. He was. Point. Yeah. He yeah. wanted to retire. So, and so <laughs> 
I imagine he wasn't entirely happy when you brought this question <laughs> home. You know what? He is my biggest cheerleader. You know what? He was like, if you want to do this, we'll make it work. And so he he really was all in if, if, it, if it was what I wanted to do. And I had to really think about it because part of it was the making history, right? This little black girl from inner city Columbus was going to forever be part of Ohio's history. That was pretty heady, right? That was... yeah. So I had to think about that. And then again, I had my friend who said, you're crazy. You're going to do this. <laughs> no, there's not really a question here. That's right. <laughs> yeah. And um, and so I I said yes. And oh, what what else happened, though, was that Maureen O'Connor called me. I'll never forget this because I, I didn't really know and, Maureen. And, and again, Justice O'Connor is a Republican. By... She's a Republican. All the justices on the court were Republicans. Okay. This is the olden days, folks. It did used to be this way. Yeah. One Democrat, and it would have been six Republicans. And so Maureen O'Connor calls me one morning. Don't know how she got my cell phone number. I guess she's the chief justice. She can get whatever she wants. She probably get a cell phone number. (laughs) And so (laughs) she says to me, you know, Yvette, this is Maureen O'Connor. And I said, yes. And she said, I understand that the governor is considering you for an appointment to our court. I said, yes. And she said, and I understand that you're hesitating because in addition to the corporate boards, I also served on the board of Ohio University, which I would have to give up. That was my alma mater, right? And she said, listen to me, do not let this opportunity pass over some board seats. She said, you have a lot to contribute to this court. You would be welcome here. You will find the work interesting and enjoyable, and you will have friends here. Don't pass this opportunity up. I was like, wow. Well, that right there is a friend. That right there is a friend. And she is still one of my closest friends. Um, she, I keep saying, I said, you're the gift I got from the Supreme Court. So oh, that's, that's lovely. Yeah, she is. And it was, and even though there were six Republicans and Eve Stratton, another justice also called and asked me to come to her house to talk to her before I, you know, made a definite decision. And she's been a friend over the years. I knew her when she was on the trial court here in Franklin County. So we had, it's funny, we didn't make decisions like Republicans and Democrats, right? We looked at the law, we would have some very interesting, sometimes argumentative conferences when we were trying to decide a case. But the one thing I always felt certain of is that everybody came into the room as an honest broker. They came in trying to make the right decision on the case based on the law as they saw it. And I think you can't ask for more than that. I feel really lucky to have been on that court. Yeah. So I want to take you back to the day that you're being sworn in. Tell me all about that day. What do you remember? What was the weather like? What did it feel like? What were you saying to your granny silently as you went through all of that? What what was granny saying to you Mm -hmm. on that day? (laughs) Because granny, granny is kind of always there. She's always there. I There's every day she is on my mind. Then I day goes by, I don't think of her. And I often say, I don't think my grandkids will have that same feeling of me. <laughs> <laughs> but my grandmother was pretty special. So what I remember about that day, and in fact, I'll never forget it. It was like... It was in that moment, we were at the Martin Luther King Center, because Ted said to me, you don't want to rent a big space and it looks empty. So it was an overflow crowd. 
it was January and it was freezing. It was like the first Saturday in January. It was freezing cold. And yet two buses had come up from Cleveland. A bus had come up from Cincinnati. People stood in line. There was standing room only. Day, it was the same day Gabby Giffords got shot. Because oh Marsha Fudge, uh, who is now our, our Secretary of Housing, she came up to me and she said, Yvette, I'm sorry, I got to go. One of my closest friends in Congress has been shot. And so uh, she left immediately. But what I remember about that day is the enormity that it felt. I'm not a crier. But on that moment, uh, when Ted gave me the oath, and I was I was standing there at the podium, I just got so emotional, because I looked out at that crowd. And I saw for the first time, it really wasn't about me. I mean, this was, I I was becoming the first black woman on that court, but I was becoming the first person of color on that court since Judge Brown left 37 years earlier. There have only been three, at that time, there'd only been, I was the third black justice on the court. The enormity of that hit me in that moment. And I looked out at that crowd and people were crying, people were smiling. And I, I felt in that moment what my grandmother said to me, this is about them. Don't you ruin my name. Don't you ever make me shame to you. And so I, I felt from that moment on that I had to really make sure that I did a really good job. Because you know the old saying, and you've said this, it's not enough to be the first if there's not a second, third, or fourth, so on. So the enormity of that moment hit me and the tears are streaming down my face. And my mother said to me afterwards, she goes, you never cry. I said, I know, I don't know what happened to me. So only time I've ever seen tears on your face is when we were laughing so hard. (laughs) (laughs) But you know, to think about, you know, this, if you had said, if you had asked researchers in 1960, when I was born, unwed teenage, poor mother in 1960, nobody could have written that story. What prospects for her children? Yeah. No one would have written this one down. No. Well, no one would have written down pretty much any of the great things you've done through your career. Yeah. It's really, it's remarkable. I mean, Granny used to say, it doesn't matter where you start, it matters where you finish. And we need to say that to kids all the time. Not everybody gets to start with an even playing field, but I will take the kid that started from behind and got to the same place because they're hungrier and they're more determined. Here, here. Yeah. Yeah. Tell me a little more about how you all worked together on the court. A case comes to all of you with the whole docket and backdrop and you've got clerks and other associates in your office, I I imagine you assign a team to read each case. And then would you have kind of a mini version of debate and discuss in your chambers before you all met together as the court? Sometimes. Discuss? How how does it work? So each justice... The inner workings of the Supreme Court. (laughs) Each justice has three court clerks uh, who are lawyers. The chief has four because she's got other duties. Um, So I picked clerks. I picked... One clerk I thought would agree with me on most things. I picked a conservative clerk. 
And I picked one in the middle because I wanted to, you know, you know, if you've made the right decision, if you can test and stretch the arguments, right? And so the cases come in, the clerk, they're divided amongst the clerks, and then the clerks write a bench brief on, on most of them. And there'd be times I'd have questions. Uh, there'd be times I'd assemble them all in my chambers and we'd debate and like, why do you think this or that? And I'd have a pretty good idea as to how I wanted to vote on the case. We'd have oral arguments and the justices don't talk to each other about cases before oral arguments. Ah, so you each come to the moment of oral argument. So these are the plaintiff and defendant mm -hmm. attorneys presenting their case to yes. all of you together. Yes. You've each studied up on it, but you've not caucused on it. That's right. Wow. I didn't know that. Yep. So they, you know, they present their arguments. We ask questions and, you know, sometimes you may get an inkling of how somebody's going from the questions they're asking. And, and so sometimes I used to tell lawyers is sometimes because the justices don't address each other on the bench, sometimes we're going to ask you a question because we want this other justice to hear it or we're responding to something the other justice said. And so we would go back and forth with that. And then after oral arguments, and we usually hear four or five cases a morning, we'd meet every other week, Tuesday and Wednesday. And then after oral argument, we would go conference and conferences could take two hours, they could take five hours. It just depended on the the gravity of the cases and you you voted based on seniority so I always as the youngest justice in tenure always voted last so I like to say I had the power to swing the vote if it was three three the chief I suppose mm -hmm. monitors how the conference is going and determines when to call a vote yes the okay. chief calls the yeah okay so each initially each justice gives their vote and the most senior justice speaks first, gives their vote, and gives the reasons for their vote. And then you go around and the table. And they go around the table. And then after everybody's given, if it's not unanimous, then we have a debate. Okay. And then if you, once the chief calls for the vote, who's ever in the majority, those four names, we each had a marble with a number on it. That marble goes into a, a flask and it's shaken and whoever's marble comes out, that's who writes the opinion. Oh, interesting. Seriously, we're going to draw straws for who has to write the opinion, yep. basically. Yep. Who would have known? Wow. And on the U.S. Supreme Court, it's different. The chief justice there assigns people to write the opinion. But in ours, it's pretty random. And there were sometimes, I remember we got this one case that I knew was not going to be popular with plaintiff's lawyers. And, you know, plaintiff's lawyers tend to support Democrats. And, I, and so my marble came out and I was like, you have got to be freaking kidding me. It's a seven zero vote and I've got to write the decision. <laughs> but it, it sounds like a really very congenial court, which mm -hmm. again, in today's political times, it's almost it seems almost incredible. Yeah. And we had a female majority. It was four women and three men. So, oh, that's so I used right. To, I used to tease the men and say, we're going to go in the bathroom now and we'll advise you of our decision when we come out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, us first six women astronauts had some bathroom tricks too. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Powerful tool. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> but you know, this collegiality part reminds me of something I'm interested to ask you that's more today, contemporary and looking forward. And it's, you know, this, the state, the state of our institutions and the state of public confidence and lack of confidence in our institutions. How worried are you about that? And the strength of the fabric that's hold, that holds our country together and 
you know, how do we go forward from here? And, and, our, and a related question is, is there something we all ought to have learned in school earlier on that maybe would equip us all better as citizens and inhabitants of these times? It's, yeah. it's, it's a crazy, crazy moment. It is. It is. And I am worried. I don't think, like when I was a senior, even at a school that I was only in half days, I had government, right? So, and we had to write a thesis. You had to dig into an aspect of government um, and write a paper about it. I, I don't know that we're teaching critical thinking skills because now we're teaching to the test. Everybody has to take this test that I didn't have to take. And I worry that we don't teach enough about civics, about the Constitution, about the founding of the country. And now this movement to even restrict what's taught about the founding of the country, that we can't talk about critical race theory. We can't talk about uh, slavery and, and white privilege or what that means. I mean, that's crazy. We want to raise children who are critical thinkers, not an ideology, but giving them things that they can think critically about. And our country was not perfect. You know, in my speech, my commencement speech a few weeks ago, I said, listen, our founding fathers were not perfect men. But they created an incredible document that still serves us 235 years later. The Constitution, what's magnificent about it is that the concepts in that document still serve us today, even though the circumstances to which they're applied could not have been imagined by the founders of, of our country. They were brilliant in their brevity with the document, but also in their concepts. And so what I think we as a country have to get back to is that the majority of us believe that everybody should have equal opportunity and access to making their lives and their families' lives better. We may disagree on how to get there, but we've got to stop demonizing the other side because they think differently than us. And what has happened now in Congress is that we have people who are drawn from very narrow districts and very narrow constituencies. And so instead of being worried about the whole, they're worried about their constituents. That's a dangerous place. That's where democracies start to fail. When people lose confidence in their government, in their courts, in their elections, the democracy will fail. And I always remind people, we are a very young country. If you travel to Europe, and you see the thousands of years these countries existed before America, we've got to hold on to this and give it care and feeding because its survival is not guaranteed. Deep point. Well, Yvette, I don't want to keep you over time. Uh, you and I could open a bottle of adult beverage and probably carry on with this all <laughs> day right, long because right. there, there are definitely right. more stories to be told. But you are such a delight and such uh, an asset to our country and our community. Most of all, I'm delighted to say you're a dear friend of mine, and I thank you so much for spending some time with me today and sharing your life story thank with you. all the people out in podcast land. <laughs> thank you, Kathy, and I'm glad that I'm your friend because you are mine, and I, am, I continue to be impressed with who you are, so thank you. <laughs> this has been great. Thanks so much for joining me on today's mission. For more solo shows and deep dives with incredible guests, Along with all the ways to get the podcast and much more, head over to kathysullivanexplores.com.